and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. This week, I'm in Bristol for part two of our special with one of the world's leading wildlife and documentary cameramen, Doug Allen. Doug has filmed spectacular sequences for the blue chip wildlife programs like Blue Planet and Planet Earth, as well as explored climate change, volcanoes and filmed on Mount Everest. That love of the natural world was probably cemented during the time he spent diving for Bill Abernethy, Scotland's last professional pearl fisher, responsible for finding Scotland's largest freshwater pearl in living memory. Doug, not many guests make a part two, but you've got so many stories to tell. We could actually do a 52-part series, I think. Shall we start with the time you spent as a young man diving for Bill? You made a lovely film on that story, actually. Bill was, he was another great character. I found myself, when I graduated from university, there were two or three PhDs I could have done, but I really didn't want to do them unless they involved a lot of diving. So basically I graduated and was looking for a job. And uh, there was a a small classified ad in a diving magazine which said diver wanted for interesting work in Scottish rivers in a PO box number. So I looked (laughs) at it and a letter came back from Bill. He explained a little bit what he did, but he said, we'll take you for a dive, we'll take you for a test dive first. So we went to a fairly easy part of the tea and Bill went in the water and I looked for a few shells and things and I came out and Bill said, I had a boy up here last week in reply to that advert. I had to go in the water to haul him out. He was that useless, <laughs> but you seem to be better. <laughs> so anyway, so Bill was the last full-time professional pearl fisherman in Scotland and it was very much a partnership. Bill didn't dive, I did, but without Bill's knowledge of specific knowledge of where in the rivers to go to find the pearls that had the shells and also teaching me which particular shells to look for, Bill did not just go somewhere and haul shells out randomly. There would be areas where carpeted with shells, tens of thousands of them. So Bill taught me to look for the certain twist in the shape of the shell, which would increase the chances that there were pearl in it a lot. And so you, you might only be picking one in a thousand shells as you swam over it. Uh, but we went all over all over Scotland, really, and to Ireland to some extent. Some of the best rivers are River Forth, for example, up near Stirling, which is not somewhere you'd expect. That was a very good place for pearls. But we also fished the tea and the spay, and we would take them in once we had what we'd call a batch, which would be a small medicine bottle full of pearls. We'd take them into the jewellers, Cairn Cross, and they would separate that batch into the best quality and the medium and the not so good and give us so much per grain. The, the weight of pearl is a grain, which I forget how many grains there are to an ounce. But anyway, they would split them up and we would walk out with a cheque. And I spent a year with Bill and it was certainly very, very good for the fitness. We'd be doing one or two dives a day. Bill would often carry the equipment because we would be working sometimes quite a long way from the main road. But Bill's knowledge of things was encyclopedic, encyclopedic. Bill could use his profession as the the old um, traditional methods with the wading glass and the stick. You could use that down to almost waist deep if there wasn't much current. But once it got a bit deeper than that, it became very laborious because you had to fish it from a boat, you know, etc. And Bill realised that by getting a diver, you could get down into the deeper parts of the rivers, which were hard for him to fish, but which I could cover more efficiently. 
and probably gave you a great foundation for all the amazing things you, you went right. on yeah, to do. Yeah, you did, you did. And, and back in those days, you know, pearl fishing is not allowed in Scotland now. It's, uh, pearl has been declared a threatened species. But even back in those days, so these ideas, why the pearls were, you know, might be declining in numbers, he figured it was the amount of salt that was going on the roads. And, and also industrial runoff from fields and stuff like that. You've made more than 60 trips to the poles and written a beautiful book, Freeze Frame, documenting some of your mm. images and stories, all since you went to Antarctica in 76. But why the poles, Doug? Why do they hold such fascination? Because that's where a large body of your work has been done. I think the reason I went to the poles really was because before I became active in the camera work. I worked in the pools. You know, when I first went to the Antarctic in 76, that was as a diver for the British Antarctic Survey. My job on base was to look after the equipment and to make sure that the biologists, some of whom used diving, make sure that they got the support that they needed to carry out the work that they wanted to do. So, you know, the pools were just another fantastic place to go when you were, <laughs> like, I think I was 24 when I first went to the polls. And the way that the British Antarctic Survey ran their bases in those days, again, that was, you know, we had so much freedom and it was before the days of health and safety. And I'm not saying that things were unsafe, but they were safe in a different way from how they are now. It's like going back to the barnstorming days of the flying in a way. And then to spend the winter where there's just you and 13 other men, it was all men in those days, you, you and 13 other men, on this base. And the average age probably was probably about 25, 26. You know, I was reminded of this. I was listening to a program about sending the first Apollo astronauts there. And the average age of the people in that control room was 26. And it kind of felt like, I mean, when I think back, that's how the Antarctic was. And you think, God, we sent down these 26 varied people and they've got to get on with each other for nine months, virtually out of contact with the outside world and keep the base running, keep everybody happy for the good of science. And But everybody was well chosen. So as an experience of that place, I didn't realise it, but I was actually equipping myself for one of the least filmed parts of the planet. And so when one of the bits of advice that David gave me, or I can't remember if it was David or one of the others, but I remember it was either David or the producer. And I remember him saying one night we were chatting around the bar, and he said, you know, the good thing about meeting you, Doug, is that when I come back to the Antarctic, and I think I'll want to, I'll definitely come to you. Because if I'm going to Africa, there's a dozen people I can ask about elephants and chimps and when to go and all this sort of stuff. But I don't know anyone else who knows the Antarctic, who knows the animals, who knows how to dive, who can give us advice about clothing, all that sort of stuff, when to go. So when we got on then to talk about the freelance nature of the business, it seemed obvious to me, and as well, you know, stick to your strengths, so to speak. If I'd met David on a coral reef, I'm not sure whether things would have gone the way they did because there was any number of people diving on coral reefs. You know, I just took that bit of advice and ran with it. And in a way, when you start off with a bit of an advantage and then people ask you to go back to the poles again and again, then they come to you because they know that you can hit the ground running. They know that you can prepare the equipment won't get frostbitten and then the more often you go the more contacts you make so the whole thing begins to snowball and it's not like that now in a way I mean the, the number of people with experience now the polls has expanded vastly just because of the number of people that have been there but back in those days it was definitely an advantage and, and we were doing new things there was this element of 
trying something for the first time. And I was lucky to work with very good producers who could get very good budgets, which allowed you to do ambitious things. And so lovely to meet, well, Sir David now. Mm. And it's been a relationship and a friendship that stood the test of time. You've seen him recently. He's a wonderful man. And he's he's brought so much knowledge to people at home on the sofa and people, you've brought it with Sir David, not all of the time with Sir David, but some of the time into our living rooms. He's been a wonderful advocate for the natural world, hasn't he? The best example I think I've got of how generous David is, we're making this series for BBC Scotland called Wildlife Cameramen at Work, which was a small budget thing that BBC Scotland decided to do. They took five camera people with attachments to Scotland and basically interviewed us about how we got into the business and what it was that made us buzz. And I remember talking to the producer and saying, who's going to show this programme? He said, well, it's going out on BBC Scotland, but we haven't been guaranteed that it'll go out nationally. If we could get someone like David to voice it, then that'd be great. So I said, okay. So I wrote to David, I wrote my letter, and I said, David, BBC Scotland are making a film about your favourite people, the camera people. And I would like to ask you on behalf of the camera people if you would do us the honour of narrating it for us, please. And I got this letter back from him which said, Dear Doug, didn't you fash yourself? It will be my pleasure to narrate this series. <laughs> and that was it. So I bore this letter to the producer and I said, Here we are, we're going national here, <laughs> you know, take this. I think he did that for the camera people. He did that as a favour. Because he could see that there was going to be a good job made of it. Absolutely. It was great. And that just sums David up. You know, he's got a generosity of spirit um, for people. He's got remarkable patience when it comes to anything to do with wildlife because he knows at the end of the day, you can't control the weather and you can't control, you know, the animals. Just make sure you're professionally ready to go when he's ready to go and deliver his piece to camera. That was another one. The first time I ever filmed him doing a sync piece, there was the four of us up in the Arctic, myself, Mike, the producer, David, and Matt. We had this shot where I was would start on a shot of the, the glacier and I would come down, find David. David did, would deliver his piece. It was quite a long way away. But David would watch the camera and would know when it stopped, it was on him. He would deliver his piece and then he would walk out the shot. So I said, shall we rehearse it? No, no, let's just go for it. It's fine, we don't need to rehearse it. So it comes down and I cut and David said, well, it sounded fine to me. And the sound man said, yes, good to me. And uh, Mike said, well, I was watching it and it looked good to me because he didn't have a monitor or anything like that. And he said, Doug, how did it look for you? I said, well, as far as I was, looking good. Right, that's it, fine, on to the next one. I said, don't you want to do a reshoot? Why? Everybody seems to be happy with it. <laughs> and that was... You know, and this is where we couldn't look at it again. But I just thought, you know, when you're working with people like that, it just the whole enthusiasm, professionalism, but fun infuses itself through the whole of the group. So it's always good fun. Always good fun. Of course, you've witnessed so much change at the polls over the last 40 or 50 odd years. I would imagine some of it heartbreaking. Tell me how those polls have changed in terms of climate change, Doug, and, and how they've changed for people like the Inuit. Well, climate change is happening in both polls, but visibly, probably more so in the Arctic. And I've been lucky. I started working with the Inuit in 1988, which is when I went to the Arctic. And that, I would say, was just about the end of the stable period, let's say. And you go up and work with these people, and, and they've lived there for generations. And 
They live in a community and to get to film what we wanted to do involved often going out on the frozen sea. And that sea is quite a dynamic environment, particularly in the spring between about May and June. You know, it begins to break up. And if you're going to travel out safely on that ice, you really have to know it at a local level. Because where we were particularly working from a lot, a place called Arctic Bay, you went out and there was about 50 miles out to Ice Edge along a, a big bay that was 20 miles wide. But every year as the ice began to break out, certain cracks would develop from known points across from one side to the other of the bay. And if you knew when those cracks were going to develop, then you could work out on the edge of the ice safely. If you didn't and you stayed too long, then you might try to get home and you couldn't get back over, you know, over the crack. But these guys knew that and they also knew how to find the animals. Except with an Inuit, you never ask them directly something like, right, let's go and find the animals. Because what they would say back to you is they would say, well, I don't know where the animals are going to be because it's up to the animals where they're going to be. But I can take you out to where I, I think they might be. And because I accepted that sort of way of doing, they got on with me quite easily. They didn't spend a lot of time listening to each other, not talking. So if you want to get the best out of them, you just listen to them talking or you give them the chance to say things to you. You don't ask them direct questions, you ask them kind of circuitous things. So if it's like if you're waiting at a bus, you know, and the bus has got a timetable, you or I could say, when's the next bus come? If it was an out there and you're talking about an animal that might come, you would say, I wonder if the animals will come by today. <laughs> and he would then say, oh, yeah, well, they might, they might not. And uh, sometimes we would we'd pass groups of narwhals if we were travelling along the ice edge. That ice edge is where solid ice and then suddenly it, it's, it's broken and you've got open water beyond it. But you obviously won't find the whales on the solid ice, but you will find them in the water. And quite often they're going along the edge of that ice ice edge and sometimes we'd be traveling along the ice edge and we'd come, come to a group of belugas or something and i would want to stop and andrew would say i think it'll be a bit better if we carry on a bit and we'd carry on a bit and sure enough it was better and there was nothing for me to suggest why this area could be better than another and what a challenge with the the inuit were facing was that these generations of knowledge that they had was disappearing before their eyes because the ice wasn't breaking up when it was supposed to, when it used to be. And the animals weren't turning up when they used to. And the rain was coming down where before it had only been snow. Snow was disappearing off the land sooner than it had been. And it wasn't freezing up at the same times. And they were aware of, of these slow, steady changes, probably earlier than a lot of whiteies from down south. And remember that back in those days too, we didn't have the satellite coverage of the Arctic that we've got now. There were a few scientists who would work up there who, who put great store by what the Inuit did. But I think if more scientists, or maybe let's say if the world had paid more attention to indigenous people in the Arctic and elsewhere in the world, and listened seriously to what they were saying, then we might have been more aware of climate change. We might have been had it more believable. Our science and their science were different different ways of, of seeing the same piece of knowledge. 
Andrew is the father in A Boy Among Polar Bears, yeah, isn't he, right. in the Arctic, yep. which she made also for the BBC. It won awards. It's in such an intimate portrait of a father teaching his young son how to mm-hmm. hunt and survive. And what struck me is when you go out for miles and miles and miles with the sleds, I suppose, are they yeah, called, the with, sledges, the, with yeah. the dogs, but the snow all looks the same to me, but they read the snow, don't they? Oh, they yeah. know where they are. You know, when you see this kind of white winter wonderland like it looks on screen how do they know where you are their knowledge is extraordinary isn't it well it's very good to a local level let's say but sometimes they can extend it out but you know these these guys you know they're aware of first of all the the sound the texture of the snow what you can do with the snows really varies depending on the temperatures and the time of year you know you can't make an igloo beyond a certain time in the spring because the snow gets too sugary and it just won't hold together when you cut the blocks. But at the same time, when they're travelling across the snow, you get lines in the snow called sastrugi, which is an old Russian word. The sastrugi lies often in the direction of the wind. Whiteout is difficult for anyone to travel. Whiteout doesn't have to be a blizzard. Whiteout just has to be very heavy cloud cover, so that there is effectively the light just bounces off everywhere. There's no contrast. That will stop even the best in, in their tracks. But if they're desperate, they can travel in a whiteout by travelling at a certain angle to the sastrugi, to a certain angle to the ridges, which are often steady and constant. And when they're but, looking for seals, they can tell by the sound of the well, snow seals, underfoot, yeah, can't they? they? Well, the seals in winter live in little caves, effectively, under the snow. Um, the seal will, will maintain a breathing hole in the ice because they have to come to the surface to breathe, but it can't stay in the water all the time. So what they do is they'll make a little breathing hole or make a hole usually near a pressure ridge where the ice is a little bit broken, where the flows have come together and rumpled up. They'll make a hole in that ice big enough to haul themselves out on the top. But quite often that hole will be underneath a snowdrift. So they excavate, they dig themselves a little cave underneath the snowdrift, because that keeps them out of the wind, but out of the water. So that's a comfortable place for them to be. And it's in that cave, that's where they give birth to the young. Now, the young can go in the water fairly soon, but quite often the young will stay in that little cave. Now, the Inuit know that the seals live in those caves, but the caves are almost invisible because effectively they're dug underneath the snowdrift. But as you walk across it, carefully listening with your feet, you'll feel that hollowness underneath. And if they're walking across and they're looking, they're trying to hunt those seals for the dogs, then they'll know when they pass over one of those holes, one of those caves. And at that point, they can back up a little bit, take a couple of jumps, jump down hard, and with a bit of luck, they'll break through the roof of that cave and get a chance to catch the seal before it goes back in the hole. And it's there that you film narwhals, didn't you? The, the, we filmed narwhals. The whales, with, they're like almost kind of unicorn well, horns, yeah, yeah. aren't well, they? When the first explorers went to the Arctic, the Inuit would offer them tusks from unicorns that they'd captured. And when those tusks were brought back to Europe, the Europeans thought that they had discovered the habitat for unicorns. Narwhal are one of these animals that you can see as many photographs as you want and you can almost see as many movies as you want. But when you see them in real life, they're just the oddest animal, particularly when you're looking out from the ice edge, you're looking out over the sea on a nice flat, calm day, uh, often in the evenings, and suddenly out there 
you know, just see this single tusk come up and impossibly long, you know, three meters long. So it comes up and it just waves around and maybe another one comes up beside it and they might touch tips and then... Now that is something that drones would be useful to film. We never, when we were most of the filming I was doing with narwhals, we didn't have drones. But if you got drones above those narwhals, it'd be fascinating to know what they're doing to get their tusks above the water. They might be displaying, it might be that they're trying to mate with a female underneath there. Very hard to see because they're quite difficult to approach male narwhals. But if you could get a drone up above them with a zoom lens and you know, you'd be able to see because they must be just under the surface no more. Well, you talked about in the early days when, of course, it was on film and you're worried about putting the film through the X-ray machine, presumably at airports, etc. How has the technology changed now and the camera gear? Is it much lighter? And, and now, obviously, <laughs> there are drones and other things yeah. that can be used. You must have seen a lot of change on that front too, Doug. Yeah. No, it's, it's just got lighter. It's got, probably got heavier has and more really? of it yeah and what are you shooting on things like red or? yeah red red camera so it's all basically it's all digital now and it's all going on to flash cards and do you prefer um, that for certain things i it's moved on such a lot that i don't quite have the same not quite attracted to it in the same way as it was i mean i i like to film when i'm looking down the lens at what's happening and i can open the other eye and it's all there when you fly a drone, obviously you're looking at a monitor. What's happening is a long way away. Stabilised systems on boats, for example, the camera person will sit close to his monitor. The camera will be on a stabilised system a few metres away, possibly pointing in a totally different direction. He or she, the camera person, is often sitting at the back looking at his monitor with a towel over his head. It sort of puts a distance between the subject and the it's not as raw, from, is it, as it's it was in your days? Quite, it's, no, it's not quite the same. I know that you took a break from what I suppose I could describe as the highly polished BBC programmes around 13 years ago. You wanted to make more cutting-edge films on things like overfishing and coral. Mm. What influenced that change of direction, Doug? I made the decision kind of a little bit, just as Blue Planet 2 was kicking off. I really enjoyed Blue Planet 1. I had a lot to do with it. And it felt to me at that point that you know, the BBC was not grasping the nettle of carrying the message about climate change that I felt it should have been. And so, in a way, Blue Planet 2 was, it was a bad mistake because it did very well with ocean plastics, for example. But by that time, I, I was on to filming for coral reef conservation programs for a um, people called Living Oceans Foundation, which were based in America. And they were going around the world looking at coral reefs and trying to establish which areas of coral reefs could be the best to preserve, could be the best to conserve, to make into no fish zones, that kind of thing. Working with scientists and we were making educational films and things like that. So it was a change of direction and it was good. And I was also at that point, it wasn't long after I'd written my book, Freeze Frame, so I was beginning to get, that was a self-published book, so the way to get the way to get that out there and sold was to start doing a lot of presentations. The good thing with the book and presentations was it gave me a chance to put my own climate change messages in, mixed in with talking about how we made these films and uh, reaching out to a different audience, smaller audiences, but hopefully in, a, in as effective a way or a more effective way perhaps, I thought, than, than some of the big programmes were. And where do you think we are, you're very well placed as somebody who's spent such a long time, particularly in the polar regions, but mm. filming all over the place. 
where are we with climate change? And the planet will continue, but will humanity, are we going to do enough in time to stop the rise in temperatures? Well, based on the last five years, no. There's lots of targets, lots of talks, but we have not yet begun to even flatten the curve in terms of bringing down global emissions of CO2. Some countries will point to, you know, UK and will point to, to their figures, but I don't think those UK figures, for example, include all the emissions that come out of China, where a lot of stuff gets made for us and then brought in. So I think that every country, if you're talking about a country reducing its overall emissions, you have to look at the goods that are being made for that country wherever they're being made, and you have to get those emissions down. So I don't know. I think we're in for a scary next few rides. We've just come out with the World Meteorological Office saying that we're going to pass 1.5 in the next seven. The reason for that is probably we're about to have a big El Nino event, which is uh, this big warming of the Pacific, which basically causes the whole world to warm. Now, most El Nino events last two or three years, but this one, you know, who knows? All the indications, sadly, are that is that things are are getting worse and we may have passed some big tipping points and when we pass those tipping points we're into a whole other ball game i think places like the arctic definitely have their back to the wall when you look at the ice in the arctic ocean and the distribution of that ice and the kind of ice that you get up there it's not a good sign so polar bears may not go extinct but they may be much more restricted in their distribution within the Arctic Ocean and in terms of the overall numbers because there just may not be enough ice on the Arctic Ocean for long enough throughout the year for a polar bear to make a living. I think you have a lot to talk about with the founder and chair actually of Convex Group, Stephen Catlin. Yeah. He commissioned a survey in the Arctic 15 years ago with mm -hmm. the explorer Penn Haddon uh, yeah. and did a research piece on coral. But what's fascinating to me is he's just launched the Seascape Survey, mm -hmm. which is a five-year major research project with somebody you know, George Duffield, who co-founded co mm -hmm. Blue Marine and scientists from Exeter University. And what they're trying to establish is how much carbon is stored in a healthy seabed, how much carbon stored in, in a compromised seabed and the effects of overfishing. And hopefully in the data they're collecting over the next few years, there will be a way of utilizing the ocean more as the world's biggest carbon sink effectively, because that's really what it should be. Mother nature does that, doesn't it? I know the biggest vertebrae species on the planet, I think are tiny little fish that live on the seabed and come up to the surface and, and take the CO2 back down. But overfishing has destroyed a, a lot of the ocean's ability to help us, hasn't it? No, the ocean is, is a vast sink and it has uh, issues with when it warms up, it contains less oxygen and that is at the basis of a lot of life in the ocean. When it warms up, it also expands. That's the main reason for sea level rise is actually thermal expansion of the oceans. There are enormous amounts of methane trapped under the Arctic Ocean. When it's under pressure and cold, methane can be turns into a crystal. Well, the shallow areas of the Arctic are getting warmer and there is real concern about that methane warming and coming out of the crystal and bubbling to the surface as methane gas, which is a much more effective warmer of the atmosphere than CO2 is. So we've got 
many, many reasons to be very, very concerned. The thing with the ocean is that it changes slowly, but it's very difficult to stop it changing. Things happen slowly in the ocean, but then they happen a little bit quicker. And then no matter what we do, it is going to take a long time for it to start cooling down again. And you're currently working with a young Scottish filmmaker, aren't you, on climate <laughs> change? Well, yeah, Libby and I were trying to get a programme off the ground, a series off the ground, looking at, in a rather light-hearted way, in a way, about climate change in, in Scotland and what can be happening up there to things. I say a light-hearted way because I think, to be honest, we've got to bring awareness of climate change with every different kind of messaging uh, that we can manage. It doesn't have to be deadly serious all the time to still make a difference and still impact through to people. The fact is we're going to have to change many aspects of our political, economic and our cultural worlds that we live in if we are to make a difference. And those changes have to happen faster than we've ever done before, mostly because we've done so little about it for the last, you know, 30, 40 years. It's a wrap. You do a lot of speaking. Mm. Part of the reason for that is because you want to, as well as share some extraordinary stories with people, but get the climate change cross. Yeah. But just end on a couple of your favourite stories from It's a Wrap that perhaps we haven't covered in our two-part special. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier on about all these BAFTAs and Emmys that I've got. Well, a wee while ago, I was phoned up at half past five in the morning, phone rang. They said, this is Avon and, and Somerset Constabulary here. Have you been robbed? Have you been broken into? overnight and I looked around the flat and you can see the flat's not very big so I said no I don't think so are you okay so you're, you're sure you haven't and I said oh well I said hold on there is the garage around the back there's the garage around the back so pulled on my clothes and went around the back and sure enough my garage has been jemmied open and the door's half open and I said it is. Somebody's been in my garage and I know they've been in last night because I put my bike away at nine o'clock. I'm impressed. I said, you're telling me I've been robbed before I was even aware of it. How did you know? Well, he said, well, we stopped a car about three o'clock. We've had our eyes on this car before, but we stopped it because it was driving a bit suspiciously. A lot of stuff in the back didn't belong to the person who was driving it. And one of the things we found in the back was an Emmy with your name on it. <laughs> So we Googled, dug on, and went, here you are, and this is why I'm talking to you. And I said, that's great. He said, but what I want to do no now, said the policeman, what were you doing with an Emmy in your garage? <laughs> Most people don't keep them <laughs> no. in their garage. I noticed I one of your BAFTAs is pride of place in the, <laughs> yeah. in the living room. Well, I, said, I said, I've got too many to keep them. What, made me, laugh, what made me laugh, Doug, when you were making me a cup of tea is how we were actually trying to tot up how many BAFTAs you'd won. I think we've got to, we think it's five, don't we? And yeah, eight Emmys. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. It's five, yeah. And what else I is mean, there out there, Doug, for you to film? What ambitions? You've had so many firsts, you've had so many amazing experiences. Yeah. In your heart of hearts, what else is there that you well, really want to Well, remember that camera people are kind of like the astronauts at the top of the rocket in terms of getting the best fun out of the job and sometimes more publicity in a way than we perhaps deserve. We're at the top of a, a great team of people, you know, starting with the researchers who find the stories, producers who are brave enough to take them on, and then all the people who come in to the pictures, editor, track layer, music, David's narration, etc., etc. I don't know. I think I was very lucky to go into filming when I did, when there was so much that was unexplored. 
I would still like to make a film that made a difference, that somehow shifted the needle in some way in terms of the issues and things like that. There are one or two people in the world, one or two scientists that I know, who I think are deserving of a, a film, sometimes for the work they've done, but sometimes because I just know they're great characters. And there are a number of good documentaries about, you know, 90 Minuters, which really get under the skin of people and show you all the sides of them. And I would love to make a film like that about some whale people that I know. There's a great guy called Don Walsh, who in 1960 went to the deepest part of the ocean. And he's an amazing character, and I'd love to make a film about him or with him. But I'm not sure. I, there's also a lot of things that I just like doing that aren't necessarily associated with filming. I'm certainly quite happy to be closer to home in a way. I'm lucky. I think I've seen a lot of the world when it was less people, when it was less exposed, you know, when, when it felt like true wildernesses, what have you, when it was that genuine exploration feel to going to places. So, you know, I'll, I'll settle for that. I could listen to your dulcet tones and adventures all day. It's been oh. a true honour to meet you. I really mean that. And thank, thank you. you for bringing or being part of a team that brings us such incredible insights into our living rooms and experiences that without cameramen like you, most of us mm -hmm. would never see. So I hope we can stay in touch, Doug. Well, I am doing a tour of English theatres through bit of September and a lot of October. So keep an eye on my website for that or keep an eye on my Twitter account, what have you, because I'll be putting details of that up. Fantastic. And hopefully, you know, tell some of, well, tell some news stories. Well, it? lovely. <laughs> and then perhaps we can have a, a pint afterwards. Yeah, be, sure. That would be marvellous. You've been listening to the final part in our two-part special with award-winning cameraman Doug Allen, the man behind some of the most spectacular footage on programmes like Blue Planet, Planet Earth and Frozen Planet and talking in this episode about climate change. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another great guest. Bye for now. 